early morning sunlight is your best opportunity to set the stage for sleeping deep and well at night. And now we understand that those retinal pathways in the early morning stimulated by the particular blue that's there at when the sun is low in the sky, sunset, sunrise, it goes through particular retinal pathways that then helps modulate hormonal surges through the day, including early morning cortisol, which has been, been linked with lower um, depression rates and early evening rise in melatonin, which we know promotes deep and restful sleep. It also, that early morning sun has been shown to help regulate dopamine and sex hormone pathways. So, wow, just free early morning light, 10, 15 minutes, you know, and resetting that clock. Ayurveda talks a lot about the clock and the circadian clock. There's times of day where doshas are active. You know, I don't want to be too technical, but, you know, again, there's this quality of a profound understanding. And when the pandemic first came out, there was a position paper from Harvard Sleep Lab that read like an Ayurvedic textbook. And they basically said, what we believe will give you the most best sleep because everyone's schedules are disrupted was early morning light, you know, exercise every day. And the other thing that's very consistent, which is actually spoken of pretty profoundly in Ayurveda is a routine that's rhythmic lunch at the same time this was in the harvard paper socialization at the same time exercise at the same time and think of how scattered all our lives are in this modern era this rhythmicity i always say resilience is rhythmicity rhythmicity is resilience these two are very intricately intertwined today we are excited to bring you an insightful conversation with dr siri chan khalsa a medical doctor and Ayurvedic practitioner who believes that food is your best medicine or your primary source of disease. Dr. Sirachand is an accomplished doctor and has studied Ayurvedic medicine with master teacher Dr. Vasant Laud. She has also completed a yoga teacher training, Reiki master training, and has a formal fellowship in integrative medicine through the University of Arizona under Dr. Andrew Weil. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health. This is a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. Please enjoy this conversation as we talk with Dr. Sira Chan today about how Ayurvedic medicine and Ayurveda views both health and disease, what the doshas are, and how you can integrate an Ayurvedic approach into your healthcare for your best life. Well, thank you, Dr. Sierra Chan, for coming on today. Um, known you for a while now through the um, Arizona Fellowship, and, and now you've had such a, a great path that we've just kind of watched you grow as a as a doctor, as a leader, you know, in the Ayurvedic space, especially. So, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for being on today. Oh, it's a delight to be here, and always grateful to uh, connect with other open-minded clinicians. Yes, I think that's a big um, phrase, you know, open-minded, because really, we don't know what the possibilities are unless we have an open mind and open heart, you know, so. Yeah, curiosity, it did not kill the cat. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any cats? Actually, that's a good uh, place to start. Okay, (laughs) I love, I love that. Actually, we were just watching as a family, um, the, uh, this is very random, but I I think it's always good to kind of kind of be real about these things. Uh, t- Tim Burton's version of Alice in Wonderland and, and they have the Cheshire cat on there, which is like the iconic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really the eyes, you know, I think that's the big thing, right? The eyes are the window of the soul. And so mm-hmm. 
we yeah. really have to keep our eyes open for what's out there, what can help patients, what can help our communities, right? Mm, well, if our eyes are not connection. open, how can we how can we really see, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, on that. So speaking of your own vision and your own path um, in terms of seeing and, you know, seeing the light for you, if you could just kind of walk us through listeners, um, your path to become, you know, medical doctor and all the things you went through and, um, you know, how did you become an Ayurvedic practitioner and kind of that whole journey? Well, I'm so grateful for the question because it leaves a lot of, it's like a canvas. I get to paint a story here. But um, I think one of the most pivotal things to appreciate and understand, and I imagine your listeners are from all over, but I did, I grew up in the Washington DC area and I went to the Thomas Jefferson Magnet School. And, you know, this is now in the 90s, a long, long time ago when the school was first starting, but there was a tremendous prominence in that, in that four-year span on logic, on reasoning. It was the early evolution of um, uh, computer programming, right? So, you know, we were the first class to have computers in the classrooms, you know, it was kind of a really interesting time. But at the same time, something inside me always felt a deep call and appreciation for the humanities and the arts, going through the Smithsonian museums, going to performances. My parents were ushers. So we, you know, we found ways to be creative to get to shows. I remember so many 4th of July, and we're recording this around the time of the 4th of July, going to the mall and just exploring so many different ways of celebrating life. And so, you know, there always was a bit of a tension inside me between leaps of faith and intuition and creativity and just abject logic and sequence of thinking. And I found that through the years that medicine seems to like to polarize itself between the two. You're either in the camp of evidence-based and logic, or you're, you're living in a camp of, um, let's just take it on faith. We don't have the information to fully understand all the pieces that would validate this from an evidence-based standpoint. And so that actually started for me very, very early. I didn't have a big awakening well into my career. I kind of went into medicine knowing, having studied botanical medicine, having explored plant medicine in college, you know, there was a lot of openings that had already happened for me that, you know, almost encouraged me to walk away entirely from the allopathic journey. But, you know, there were points at which I finally said, I'm going to circle back in and try to find like, I call it the corpus callosum, like the middle path, the one that fully integrates us as humans, not the one that's sort of like here or here, because it can be yes. And, which I think is a very feminine projective consciousness. And I know I'm taking some big jumps here, but that was really, that was really what that's really how I was built at a young age. There was always yes and existing for me. And through my career, it created a lot of tension because in, in many parts of the early portion of my career, which was in the 90s, there was a sense of now things are much more open. And I, you know, I even had the thought today, I don't want to be a person who ages and the generations below me say, I can't wait till she dies. I can't wait till there's room for (laughs) innovation. I can't wait until they're gone. And there's a part of me that feels that way about some of the way older medicine has been practiced and the paradigms that have been passed down 
that don't look at empowering the person to make small micro changes from exposure to light, community, self-love, sense of purpose, healthy, whatever that looks like, you know, non-standard American diet, nourishment, how we use our five senses, how we connect with nature. All of that actually is powerful pieces of how health is created. And on, in all honesty, there wasn't a moment of awakening for me. It really has been that way. And all I've done really is um, engaged in my own self-healing and been pretty forthright about that. And as I did that, there were always new modalities to learn. There was always new paths to discover, and there still is. And that is what has led me to being really an excellent internist, very good, past boards. You know, I'm highly, highly able to speak medical, but also to engage in deep healing. And I think that's been um, kind of a long-winded answer to your inquiry, but to just give it a moment is probably not full justice. Thank you, Shishan. It's great to start off with that and um, opus, you know. Um, and we know about the corpus callosum and that connects the, the left analytic side of the brain and then the right creative side. And actually my understanding, because you mentioned the word feminine, you know, I believe on average, anyone, on average, not to generalize, but on average, there is a relatively higher percentage of brain volume as corpus callosum in females. Oh, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's so, so really wild. <laughs> something interesting why we might actually see, you know, more clinicians that that you know orient themselves toward the feminine. You know, I think a lot of times in integrative health that we see a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so fascinating. Love that fact. Yes, <laughs> that's really um, cool. <laughs> like for me, I think music is a big outlet. You know, I like yes. to play piano, improv, and things. So that that allows me to balance that corpus callosum between the analytic side, which we know that medicine in general, and even I would say, you know, our society kind of gears us toward, like you said, it's not for a lot of people, um, you can choose, you, you know, both, you have to like choose one or the other, you have to be an artist, or you have to be a doctor or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so we know that in integrative health, it's really like, Dr. Lodog says life is the best medicine, right? It's everything together, incorporating both sides of the brain, creative, artistic, heart, you know, mind, body, spirit. And I believe that's where Ayurveda comes in. If you want to kind of talk with our listeners here about yeah. what is Ayurvedic medicine? Um, is this something that, you know, you had basically said that you've basically been, you know, enlightened for most of your life on the holistic <laughs> side, um, maybe, maybe from your upbringing too, with, with like exposure to the arts and everything. I'm wondering how you got into Ayurveda and, and let's just talk first real basic about what is Ayurveda. Yes. So Ayurveda is an ancient healing system that um, it's very interesting over. And I always say, you know, Ayurveda is the ultimate case study medicine in its own right, because millions of lives were studied over thousands of years in India and, um, and probably ancient cultures that had weren't under this the continental structures that we have now. And there was an observation uh, at that time, of course, we can't make an assumption that everyone who came before us in terms of humanity didn't possess our level of curiosity, didn't possess our desire of healing, feeling whole. So we have to say that perhaps these older systems when people were alive, albeit without some of the modern conveniences, they had a very dedicated study of health and healing that we maybe ignorantly say there's no validity because I've only heard a little bit about it. And I encounter a lot of cultural bias, meaning people make statements about it that I think are actually 
quite xenophobic and say, oh, there's no evidence or it's all malarkey. And I'm like, do you actually know what Ayurveda is? I mean, you know, like, I don't think you do. I, I don't think you've actually even done anything more than looked at some document that talks about Vata Pitta Kapha. And so Ayurveda evolved over the observation of humanity and man's deep desire to be healed and whole and healthy. And as that progressed, um, the initial period in time, there was a deep observation of nature, the external world, and an inquiry as to how the external world is mirrored infinitely to our interior world. And they codified that into five elements. Those five elements have qualities and features that we then observe within ourselves, And so it's then further, those five elements become the three doshas. So it's further refinement in pattern recognition. I always say most advanced uh, clinicians late in their career, mid to late in their career are actually excellent Ayurvedic physicians because they have already started beyond what the books taught them, beyond what you know maybe is on paper to notice patterns, to notice features of things that are existing. And Ayurveda technically was initially an oral tradition. So it was regionally explored. People knew about the seasons, the botanicals that grew where they grew. And it was shared as a spoken uh, process between student to teacher. And when the student had arrived to a certain destination, the teacher then allowed them to practice independently. And they then passed on the tradition. And many of the uh, Sanskrit sutras, which are these uh, rhythmic um, uh, sort of like sonnets almost, you know, there's, we don't have an easy translation for it in our training process, but they're, they're soliloquies, they're observations, they're poems, and Sanskrit's a very descriptive language. Those then provide, um, were provided as an oral tradition. And then over time, that became written as there was some perhaps fear that the integrity and the beauty of what was being transmitted was um, being distilled or diluted. And so it's gone through many, many generations of refinement, exploration, and Ayurveda, uh, technically the Sanskrit uh, translates to the science of living. So people often say to me, oh, but that's not Ayurvedic. And I say, oh, well, let's back up for a second because essentially from an Ayurvedic standpoint, it's really man's observation of him or herself within the context of the natural world. So all the features and manners in which life interacts with us externally, perhaps even processes incurring internally <clears throat> are interpreted under the lens of a pattern. And it gives us a very deep and rich way to understand how our lifestyle is actually a foundation for our future, our health, walks us towards health, walks us away from health. And it's an ever-present, effervescent series of decisions. And Ayurveda really empowered me to understand that at a very critical time. And as a small aside, um, uh, Dean Ornish, who's a very well-recognized lifestyle medicine proponent, his primary teacher was Swami Sachdananda. He talks about it um, fairly modestly. I Dean, if you're listening, I'd love if you'd speak up more about this, but I know that when he was first doing his research, there was more limitations on using terms like mindfulness and yoga and Sanskrit terms. So things were sort uh, of 
um, translated and he speaks about um, how he came home from medical school, despondent, depressed, suicidal. And Aswami, his sister had invited, this teacher was in his living room and said, you know, why so glum, Chum? Come on, life's not meant to be lived this way, not to trivialize depression in any way. But like the Swami basically said, I think with some minor modifications and some internal exploration, your mood will shift dramatically. And when he, once he had that personal experience of self-care, mindfulness, movement, yoga, pranayama, um, which in and of themselves are not necessarily contained within Ayurveda, they are sister sciences. Um, he had a revolutionary emergence of um, energy, effervescence, mood, happiness, vitality. And he said, I've got to figure out how to research this and share it. So many of the tenets of modern lifestyle medicine, the six pillars, actually are foundationally connected to principles found in Ayurveda that seemingly are common sense, but maybe we've lost our way a little bit. Well, yes, and I'd love to go through those pillars in a sec, but it, you've said a lot of rich things there. First of all, I have to ask, that, um, Swami Sachinananda, was he the, he was the one that founded Yogaville? Is that yes, yeah, in Charlottesville, yeah. Charlottesville, yeah. So it's an interesting um, uh, coincidence, or maybe it's not a coincidence. My sister is also an integrative family physician, and um, she gave me as a medical school graduation gift a trip. We took a trip to Yogaville. Yeah. Wild. Yes. That would have been a while ago. Probably. It was a while ago. And um, it was funny because I remember the yoga teacher patting me in the back and say, you're I know you're not that flexible, but, you know, you're there's still hope for you. And oh, um, that's awesome. It was a really great experience because, you know, having done yoga kind of, you know, a bit, uh, you know, uh, you know, generally, but but, you know, having like going there for a weekend and kind of immerse, immersing a bit, it was definitely a, a, a deeper experience for sure. Um, and, and Dean Ornish, um, I know he's done a lot of work with reversing uh, heart disease with, it sounds like a group support lifestyle nutrition, but it does sound like he's incorporating yoga in there and it sounds like Ayurvedic principles. So, um, and, and what I also like about that definition of the science of life is that, you know, when you look at sort of allopathic medicine, which we know there's a, a role for, a, a definite role for, it is usually more of the study of disease, right? That's what we were, all were both taught in, in medical school, yeah? So it's kind of nice to have this counterbalance of, okay, we, we can treat disease, we can look at the pathophys and all that, but then how do we study life and how do we study, you know, people and systems and communities that are thriving, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can up-level life in order to prevent disease also. Yes. And I love Dan Butner's work supports that so beautifully, the blue zones where they yeah. looked at the five regions and found the nine features that really demonstrate um, health and vitality. And I think, you know, what is often overlooked in medicine is the value of movement, the value of community, the value of sense of purpose. Yeah, I mean, these are much. plus the other things of wind down, move, you know, mostly plants kind of picture. So really interesting to consider that. And I think from the, um, from the Ayurvedic standpoint, we can also understand now in our retrospectoscope, as I like to say, <laughs> that there was actually a profound understanding of epigenetics, of circadian rhythms, of the microbiome of the autonomic nervous system. And I could give you the Ayurvedic terminology for those things, but again, you know, just to appreciate that those things are actually remarkably well elucidated in Ayurvedic textbooks. There was no disconnection 
from all these um, instances of our external world, from our financial health, from pandemics, from exposure, what we're exposed to in our homes. They have a whole science that's like feng shui called vastu. So there's really, it was really an open-ended discussion of how do we explore vitality? And there was, there's a huge arm because not everyone's going to be that good at that, right? We're all imperfect in our habits, our understanding, our beliefs, our trauma. And so there's actually a massive amount of information that looks at a disease model as well. And so you had to really travel to India to get appropriate rich treatments, but there are surgical techniques described in the ancient texts, very advanced medical pathways. And a small piece that I think is just relevant is that in the Ayurvedic model, there are six stages of disease Stages five and six are the terminology that we know in the West. Nothing translates perfectly because it's a different foundational model. But one through four is often where we write people off. Oh, a somaticizer. I don't know about you, but do you remember with disdain the teachers who would say, it's a somaticizer? (laughs) Yeah, like it's all in their head or something like that. Right. But they're actually experiencing physiologic changes, which we now know are probably largely being driven by the autonomic instability that comes from probably the trauma of being alive. But many people have very distinct trauma that's impacted that um, those pathways of internal expression. I always say we, you know, we think about that. Oh, I learned in medical school, rest and digest, but how actually important is it for the parasympathetic to be online for digestion way more than people realize? Yeah. That's definitely something that we kind of go back to over and over with, you know, working with people with gut health. It's like, it really goes back to the autonomic nervous system. A lot of times for people. Yeah, that, that, and that is Vata in a lot of ways, managing Vata. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of an overactive Vata. Yeah, yeah so Vata is in excess due to, I'll tell you something very interesting. Um, Cause I focus a lot on clinician health. My focus at this stage of my career has really been devoted to supporting clinicians who are experiencing various stages of burnout or career redefinition or interest in Ayurveda and lifestyle medicine. And um, in Ayurveda, there's a tenant that says suppression of natural urges will increase vata unfavorably. So the natural urges are sneezing, coughing, peeing, pooping, eating, sleeping, um, ejaculation, you know, sexuality. And I think about every physician I know has pretty much learned how to bypass the need to pee, the need to poop, their thirst, and their ability to eat for very extended periods of time. So just inherently when we look at burnout, if we think about burnout from an epigenetic or an Ayurvedic standpoint, there's actually, you know, I often hear people say, oh, well, burnout, get, do your thought work. Mm, I think it's, you know, matter over mind in the sense, not mind over matter. Yeah, We have yeah, to understand yeah. that the matter has changed physiologic epigenetic changes have happened due to the long-term insult of being unaligned with our natural states as clinicians. I saw that on your website, which we'll go over later. It's so brilliant, you know, because it is something I think we kind of jump to in society as like just willpower and let's just kind of power through it. But there's a body effect that's happened over probably years and decades of burnout for a lot of people. Exactly. And that's why it's difficult to treat actually, because 
you know, what happens a lot of times is if people burn out so severely that they step away and then there's a natural intelligence that emerges that is self-care. They believe it is then the thought work or the psychiatry or perhaps as needed medication that's helping them. But in reality, it's sleeping better, pooping, peeing when they need to, um, nourishing themselves when they're hungry, being in nature, connecting with family and community. These all are epigenetic things. And, and by epigenetics, for those that may not be as familiar, these are the mechanisms that are largely telling cells to, to do the things, the machinery that inherently is there. Yes, make these, make this hormone. Yes, make this neurotransmitter, make this protein receptor to facilitate this, these connections. Um, is it really a complicated thing? This still, this whole business here of our humanity is still pretty miraculous. And the more I know, absolutely, absolutely, the less I know. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, humbling, right, to kind of get get the full picture of what's what's going on. Let's let's talk real broad about Ayurvedic principles. So, what are your what are your kind of general those six principles that you had had mentioned there? Yeah, so these are six principles that are also the foundations of lifestyle medicine. So, number one is form and maintain relationships. So, and in Ayurveda, we actually look at that as first relationship to self, right? This constant um, inner fine tuning of how do we become more compassionate? And the Ayurvedic terminology that I particularly like is there's a state of consciousness that sort of uh, mundane gets us through the busyness of life. And there's also a state of consciousness that's a little bit more focused on serving others. That's um, finding roots of connection and collaboration that's community oriented, not dominion over others. And I think that this quality of how to form and maintain relationships, we've actually kind of dropped the ball on, on that in our modern culture. But we also know from scientific literature that isolation for people as they age, loneliness is an independent risk factor, almost as potent as smoking. So for mortality and complications and even death. So this is actually this, this piece of forming and maintaining community is profoundly explored within the textbooks, improving sleep. So sleep and circadian rhythm are integrated very profoundly into Ayurveda. And I'm a big fan, I think you are as well, of Andrew Huberman's work. And he's a neuroscientist with a focus on um, the retinal pathways, ophthalmology kind of angle. He talks a lot about, and I used to say this to my patients, <laughs> at that point in time, it was a little bit like, what are you talking about? But with his body of, and things he's talking about makes so much more sense um, from a physiologic standpoint. But I used to say to patients, Early morning sunlight is your best opportunity to set the stage for sleeping deep and well at night. And now we understand that those retinal pathways in the early morning stimulated by the particular blue that's there at when the sun is low in the sky, sunset, sunrise, it goes through particular retinal pathways that then helps modulate hormonal surges through the day, including early morning cortisol, which has been, been linked with lower um, depression rates and early evening rise in melatonin, which we know promotes deep and restful sleep. It also, that early morning sun has been shown to help regulate dopamine and sex hormone pathways. So, wow, just free early morning light, 10, 15 minutes, you know, and resetting that clock. Ayurveda talks a lot about the clock 
in the circadian clock, there's times of day where doshas are active. You know, I don't want to be too technical, but you know, again, there's this quality of a profound understanding. And when the pandemic first came out, there was a position paper from Harvard Sleep Lab that read like an Ayurvedic textbook. And they basically said, what we believe will give you the most best sleep because everyone's schedules are disrupted was early morning light, you know, exercise every day. And the other thing that's very consistent, which is actually spoken of pretty profoundly in Ayurveda is a routine that's rhythmic lunch at the same time. This was in the Harvard paper socialization at the same time, exercise at the same time. And think of how scattered all our lives are in this modern era, this rhythmicity. I always say resilience is rhythmicity. Rhythmicity is resilience. These two are very intricately intertwined. The third thing is avoid risky substances. And I think this one is a little bit clearer, but as integrated providers, we also know endocrine disruptors, right? All the things in our environment, in our water, in our food, glyphosate, you know, that are inherently unknowingly to many. And I, I get into online arguments with people about this because I feel so strongly that your budget and your awareness allows you to make informed choices about less volatile organic compounds in your body. That is for the best. That is for the best. And, and this is my own particular soapbox, but eliminating scents and colors from our laundry sheets and soap I did a whole little deep dive because I was walking through this suburban neighborhood and every other house was perfuming the street with this sense from the laundry detergent. And I was so nauseated after this walk that I looked it up and they said about 3% of air pollution in residential areas comes from dryer related activity and et cetera. But that's just, you know, of course, they're also talking about smoking. And we're also appreciating more that things like alcohol may be a carcinogen. So really looking at alcohol in moderation. So those are the three. And then I'll pause for a second, see if you had a question, and then I'll do the second three. If there's um, I did want to take a little bit of a deep dive into the three doshas, because you had mentioned the doshas for circadian rhythm. So if you could just yeah. explain that a bit, and um, yeah. maybe those, those areas where they're more prevalent during the day. Yeah, sure. So the way that we think about the circadian rhythm and again, sort of sleep is we have the three doshas. So for those of you listening, we have a vata, pitta and kapha. And this is not uh, medical advice, but if you went to ayurveda.com, there's a little uh, sheet you can fill out to explore a little bit more because that's the most common question I get. What are my doshas? And I always say, it's a little more complicated, but I'll go ahead and offer that as a resource because people may be curious, which is my primary dosha. But we have to appreciate that we have a way that we existed in sort of our genetic relationship to ourself. Um, it's sort of our genotype. And then we have a way that our genes are being expressed, the epigenetic phenomena, our phenotype. And so in Ayurveda, we, we say there's a prakruti and vikruti, who we were at the beginning, where our perfect health is and where our states of imbalance are. Vikruti is our current state of imbalance. So when people do those forms, there's often a little confusion like, well, but I think I'm this, but then if I this, then that. And so uh, just to point out that sometimes when you do those forms, it's ideal to think back to answer the questions to a state when you were probably closest to your best health. 
Um, so small digression. So when Got we it. think about the doshas, the doshas are a way that we connect to patterns and interpret them, uh, interpret them. So when we think of the three doshas, we have vata, pitta, and kapha. Vata is the air and ether element, pitta is fire and water, and kapha is water and earth. And we are all a combination of that. So think of Audrey Hepburn, this skinny mini vata, as my teacher said, air and ether, the bones are thin. Then we think of the rock, Dwayne Johnson, right? This is kapha, he's got a lot of earth element. He's solid, he's dense, he's contained, he's heavy. And so even we can appreciate that what they were doing was basically just observing differences in human constitutions. So um, do, do you have a pitta? Do you have a pitta example? Yeah, so I think Ryan Reynolds is a great- Ryan Reynolds, yeah. You know, I try to use movie stars because people yeah, know yeah, them. Yeah. That's funny. But um, that's Ryan Reynolds, he's kind of snarky. He's got a little bit of yeah, fire in him. A little fiery. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And typically his build is sort of middle of the road build. He's not okay. super bulky, but he's not super thin. Okay. Um, there's a bit of a hot head in there. You know, yeah, like yeah. The fire element, the fire hot element. and sharp um, okay. qualities. Okay. So, um, so the doshas actually exist in all of us, all three doshas, and they have primary functions. So this is where it gets sometimes just a, a, a little bit like if you haven't studied it. But when we talk about different times of the day, we're saying those aspects that are the primary features of those doshas are more active. And the best example I can give to this, and, and I'll just relay those times briefly, but the kapha time of day is 6 to 10, and this is a.m. p.m. The vata time is 2 to 6 a.m. p.m., and the pitta time is 10 to 2 a.m. p.m. So when we think about, I'll go through each of them. So vata is the air and ether element. And we think about air and ether as our create our creativity, our connection to what's vast, to what's beyond us. And oftentimes we can be a little spacey in that two to six time per day, right? So vata balancing activities can sometimes be helpful. In the in the sense that there's a dinacharya, which is the daily routine recommended in Ayurveda, it's often recommended to be up with a meditation practice of some kind, pranayama, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, before 6 a.m. So this gives that two to six time where vata is active in the early morning, enhanced meditation. Enhanced two to six a.m., yes? Yeah. Okay, so, so usually before the sun is up or yeah, something. Before the sun Got is it. up. And then if we think about this again, from say a Pitta standpoint, the Pitta is active from 10 to 2 a.m. p.m. So this is why, and interestingly, it's in Sachin Panda's work who does a lot on circadian rhythm. It was in the, um, it's not talked about in, in the lifestyle medicine curriculum, but also the, I believe the Harvard group looked at it, but largest meal when the sun or when Pitta is high in the sky. So we are, a little upside down, we often eat our largest meal when the sun is set. So that midday meal, if it's possible to be the larger one, we have more of our, in the Ayurvedic terminology, agni or digestive capacity, digestive fire. The other way to kind of conceptualize this is that they also said the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is a time when we digest the day. But if we stay up past about 10 a.m., 10 p.m., charting, computer time, engaging, we get that second wind. So instead of diverting the energy to its appropriate physiologic 
we are diverting it into an intellectual. So there's a, a lot of mental energy for Pitta. So you can see how it's very nuanced in its own right. And so particular people with more prominence of one dosha or another might be more prone to that. So a Pitta predominant, which is the preponderance of physicians because literally sadhaka pitta, so subdosha of pitta, is responsible for the metabolism of information and the and the how much information we consume as in our pre-med days and our med school residency is vast. And you really just aren't drawn to this field if you can't metabolize information at a, you just don't you don't make it. Mm-hmm. And, it and that's okay. You're you're not yeah. going to be happy in it either. <laughs> so, right, right. It um, is a lot. Yes. It, it is. And so this is this quality. A lot of physicians have a bright, luminous sort of intellect, but I always encourage them to recognize the heart. It can be linked to that or alienated from that. And that's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's often a dilemma. So this concept of rhythmic qualities through the day, there's also times for all the organs. I don't have that memorized off the top of my head, but we just begin to appreciate that certain times of day, um, certain doshas will be more active, which means that we can lean into that, support the body, or we, we can be separated from that almost in an ignorance to where health is. And there's some data that, you know, scientifically would support rhythmic movement through physiologic function in the day. I'd love to see a lot of refinement around that. I think it would be really fascinating. I think wearables are going to start to give us all kinds of information once they're gathering more than just glucose and heart rate variability. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, well, they can the rhythmicity, like you said, creating resilience and vice versa. It does sound like when you look at those blue zones, they not only have community and connection, but they do have a rhythm to their day. Yeah, and, and that's exactly. it's almost like predictable. So it's like really reassuring to the body. Yeah, yeah. And I think it takes calories. We always say calories, and it's like an abstract thing, but like it takes. Um, energy to like reorganize the day every day. Yeah. Yeah. Like if we had to redo our schedule, you know, schedule different every day. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Um, Well, let's go to part two of uh, lifestyle, the the, the, the other three. So uh, number four is healthful eating. These again are the lifestyle medicine pillars. So healthful eating, whole food, plant-based food. And, you know, I think we're starting to appreciate that Um, vegetables don't need to be vilified, that they actually prolong vitality. Um, The way that I conceptualize this, and this is actually a very broad conversation, but probably the area of my career I've put the most focus is on, I'm interested in all these pillars, but food has been the one I've been, I wanted to be a chef and then I went into medicine. So it's been, that's- You are a chef, you you are a chef. Well, that's true, (laughs) but that's been the the push-pull for me. but I think that what I've really come to appreciate is that if we can have half the plates, vegetables, including leafy greens, a quarter of the cl- plate, protein oriented, ethically sourced protein. I don't, I'm not really interested in arguing with people about meat. You, you, you know, most people have their minds made up. Yeah, so yeah. my feeling is like, okay, if you want to reduce meat, we can certainly show you how to do that in a healthy and thoughtful way. If you need to eat meat, it shouldn't be the primary thing you eat. Now, I don't want to argue with the carnivore movement. I think there's just no talking to that. Um, there's no room for conversation with, with that mindset, unfortunately, mm-hmm. from my perspective. But And then a quarter of the plate grains. And a lot of the diets that have shown us, especially like the Blue Zones work and longitudinal data shows us that the healthy fiber that's found in 
legumes and grains. And I do recommend soaking and rinsing, cooking your own beans to reduce the phytates and lectins in them, being, you know, carefully observing that people knew techniques of preparing legumes for millennia. I mean, Mm -hmm. I certainly hear people argue with me, well, pre-agricultural times, there was many millennia of humanity living without what we do now. But at any rate, um, I digress. So really at the end of the day, I like to think of the power plate, half veggies, a third of that leafy greens, one quarter grain, one quarter protein source. And if you want to do three quarter plate veggie and no grain, that's fine. You know, just, you know, that's fine too. You just have to be careful in your, uh, in your I approach. Think, I think a lot of people just to go more into nutrition, cause I am like you, I'm a foodie and, uh, uh, my, my dad owned a restaurant. So I'm, I'm very into food. Um, but you know, when you look at food, it's really, as we know, integratively, it's, it's one of, if not the best medicines, right? I mean, and, and it's, it's really not been focused on traditional medicine at all. Um, you know, most of our medical schools don't have a lot of courses on nutrition, if at all. <laughs> and then I think if they do, it's kind of like, oh, how do you how do you prevent scurvy or something? Oh, vitamin right, D. You know, it's, it's very very uh, superficial. But I think um, really we we definitely see that you know when people eat more of a plant based diet or more plants, they're they're going to get more energy because really, if you think about sort of the science of life, you know, the photosynthesis and then the the oxygen and the chlorophyll and all these things are needed to boost the mitochondria when you look at it from a, from that, you know, level. But I think it, there's also something about, um, I, I believe it's the, uh, you have to, you have to, um, make, make sure this is correct, but I, I believe there's some in Ayurveda, some energy, uh, that you get from eating plants. There's a consciousness uh, in a way, yeah, the, is prana. That, is that yeah. the prana, the prana, yeah, the prana, yeah. the energy. And, um, and it's probably, very life-giving when you do that. And I think to your point, you know, one time, and I'll, so I'll digress into the intuitive realm here for a moment, but yeah, yeah, let's go. Um, let's go. So when I was in India um, and uh, I've been there several times, one, one of the times I was there studying, um, I went to like a very small Ayurvedic botanical farm, if you will. And the keeper, the botanical keeper, it was like, I remembered the episode of E.T. You remember E.T. was like this incredible botanical wizard. Like, I just felt like I'd met this otherworldly being who had this incredible non-worldly knowledge of plants. And the relationship was so synergistic. You could feel this individual moving through the gardens and the botanicals with such fluidity. I was so enthralled by my time there um, to have such a profound respect for the botanical names, the science and the metaphysics, the the principles that reside. And in a very interesting manner, they actually had arranged the growth patterns in the garden uh, akin to an astrologic phenomena, like the, they're called nakshatras, which are the subdivisions in the Ayurvedic uh, Jyotish, which is the equivalent of somewhat of Western astrology. So they had these regions in the garden in a very particular pattern that were oriented to be grown because that plant was oriented to that planet, to that, that oh, energy. Cool. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And he said that he would go in the classic time, of course, we're well, well past ever probably being able to deliver anything like this, unless I 
get my secret fantasy to come true. But, um, (laughs) but he said, basically what would happen is that the Vaidya, which is Ayurvedic physician would go to the garden. Someone would come for healing. They would go to the garden and tell the garden, the plant so-and-so is here. This is what we need and ask the plants to make what they needed to make to support the healing of this human. And, and then they would harvest it within, you know, whatever period of time forward, another moon cycle, another astrological cycle, another day, you know, whatever the time frame was. And the mystical side of me was like, oh my goodness, that is, ooh, you know. That's incredible. That's really amazing. And so I never really forgot that. I never really forgot. And I remember reading some research it's been a while now where they talked about how different moon cycles affected alkaloids in certain botanicals. And we can't underestimate plants' circadian rhythms either, right? Mm -hmm. If my circadian rhythm is optimal and you take a little piece of my blood and you test it, right? Would not the plant have some relationship to circadian rhythm of seasons and any rate it didn't seem so preposterous to me as and, I and then when we it. eat those plants you know the health of the plant obviously affects you know that exactly. plant uh genetic material we know this from from research even right yeah. it interacts with their own dna and stuff and so right. so certainly the health of the the plant and and then of course even broad more broadly the planet you know is yeah, exactly is, you know we're, we're all part of that too so. right the gaia theory so gaia, yeah. and ayurveda has such an integral relationship to the interconnectedness of our our nature to nature. And I think this was a really, this was a really potent learning point for me. Um, I'll do the last two because I want to be mindful of our, our time together. But um, the, the fifth one is increased physical activity. And one of the things that we know fundamentally is what are we saying? Sitting is the new smoking, right? We are seeing so many independent risk factors that are telling us that our sedentary lifestyle, our computer screens, our lack of movement are very, very detrimental on on par with things like smoking. Again, you start hearing these things and you realize like, well, even if you have a progressive advanced disease like cancer, autoimmune, you can still do these six pillars to to what end, someone might ask me. Well, perhaps less chance of reoccurrence, perhaps less progression, or if this is gonna be a difficult, and I have hospice, you know, I'm a hospice physician as well. If this is the end of my life, then perhaps one can have a deeper, more profound spiritual opening by recognizing that these six pillars can give more ease in your being. And so um, there's no point in life where these wouldn't have validity. So what's interesting about Ayurveda, though, is that we also appreciate that nothing and extremes are not valued. And so when people there's actually discussion in the Ayurvedic community about ultra endurance sports and the inflammation that might be um, impacting the body or affecting consciousness. So it's kind of interesting to just think about that there are conversations about what does excess look like in the textbooks. And of course, I always encourage people to get an early morning walk at all costs, take the dog, take the kids, (laughs) rearrange your life to get that early morning life. It's like life-giving, you know, this quality is just so profound. 
And the sixth, um, a sixth pillar, if you will, is develop strategies to manage stress. And they actually, in their graphic, show someone in uh, Sukhasana, like this um, very particular meditation pose. And I, and I have to pause just for a moment to say, you know, we want to acknowledge the South Asian communities that are bringing and holding these lineages of knowledge and not just appropriating fully to whatever version we want. There are experts who know what Ayurveda is, who know what yoga is, who know what um, mindfulness and meditation are founded in their roots in Eastern traditions. They are not inherently a part of Western lineages. And oftentimes we're seeing the, the devolution of their essence by people that kind of use them for whatever purpose makes sense for them. And I don't necessarily think that's appropriate or fair. I'm also not a cancel culture person either. You know, I don't believe in canceling people. I just offer that as a, a line of communication to reach out if you have any questions about whether you're doing that, not you personally, but a listener, to reach yeah. out to someone who might yeah. be able to provide some context or education. Um, and I think everyone is all in for reducing stress. We know that the impact of stress inflammation, cancer, dementia. I mean, the scope of what stress does to us physiologically is so profound right. um, that we all know we need to reduce stress, but we can also at the same time, open our hearts, open our awareness to the fact that the, there are profound tools developed in the East that are ready for us to lean into, but we want to do that in a thoughtful way. We want to do that in a way that honors people and traditions and, um, and helps us work on our community mindset, you know, not just saying that person is other or foreign and opening up to what knowledge they might be bringing to this country, to this nation from the traditions that were rich in their family history. I mean, ultimately, you know, there's, there's probably in some ways, one of the pillars of health is also the realization that we're all connected. You know? Yes as a globe, as a, as a planet, you know, planetary community. So I think this whole idea, we started this conversation of, you know, the eyes are the window of the soul and keeping an open mind. And I think this is where it kind of goes full circle back into, okay, let's look at these traditional, you know, used for millennia effectively and safely, really. Yeah. Um, these traditions that, that, you know, there's a lot of inherent wisdom in there that probably gets passed on, like you said, orally, and then probably another, I guess other ways too, but um, you know this wisdom, right? Right, that, that that's really sitting out there in the universe for for us it's, to it's receive. Right yeah, it's right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, not, it's right there. And nature will teach you all of this. That's the beautiful thing. Spend time in nature, observing nature. Look at the patterns of nature. Look at a the bark on a tree, the dew on a flower, and see. You know, listen deeply and say how is that, what is that mirroring for me in my own life today and in the world around me? And there's refuge there. I often think about it. And, and I think this is a really interesting idea. It's like, you have two people in your practice, same disease process, both very difficult diagnosis and disease journey. One seems to sort of negotiate it with a little bit of ease and the other it's pure struggle. And neither is right and neither is wrong, but I like to think about this idea over here that there can be ease even when dis-ease 
is present. Mm-hmm. This whole play on words there. But mm-hmm. if we yeah. if we develop these relationships with nature, it helps us manage our mind, it helps us manage our thoughts, which drive our feelings, emotions, and actions. And nature in Ayurvedic terminology is considered sattvic. It takes us to higher realms of awareness. Uh, I hate saying that because it sounds so cliche, higher consciousness, because that is so vague. But by that, I mean, I mean, that's the terminology that's tossed around. But by that, I mean, the ability to redirect thoughts with ease, responding, not reacting when a thought emerges and saying, I'm not that thought, I don't have to engage in that thought, I don't have to believe that thought, that thought might in fact be a lie. Nature provides that buffer, that microsecond pause that gives the person who might take the path of this is difficult. Why is this happening for me? How do I get out of the, you know, this situation? Why do I, why am I always in this situation, you know, to a state of this is, this is what is, what can well, I, 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 I want to say, uh, Sirichan, that you're such a fountain of knowledge on the Ayurveda here. Um, I, I would love to have you back for like part two to talk about Ayurveda in terms of treatment of, of different conditions. Not that this is a podcast about like medical treatment right, or something, right, but right. you know, it, that'd be great to have you back for that. Now that the listener kind of has gotten some exposure to an intro, you know, what these concepts are, the pillars, the epigenetics and lifestyle. But first I'd love um, for you to just one closing thing on Ayurveda for this podcast. Um, what is one thing you wish everyone knew about Ayurveda? If there's like one thing and, you know, it's like a take-home message for today right. for, for the listener. Well, I've probably, I've actually already said it. And that is that rhythmicity is resilience. And Ayurveda has a term called Dinacharya, which is your daily routine. And if people could really hone in that daily routine, whatever it looks like, uh, this planet would change. This planet would shift. Absolutely. And that is a great segue into our, our fun question that we always have for, for guests. It's okay. a great segue, which is <laughs> what is Siraj Han's uh, morning routine? You know, I think this is something that we just talked about rhythmicity. We'd love to hear yeah. your, your routine, if that's okay. Sure. So I'm an early bird, have always been, I could be up late, doesn't matter. So I'm usually up by about five or 530. And um, it depends. A lot of times I like to take time to journal a little bit of writing. Sometimes I'll share that on social media if there's not other things happening. Um, then Then I definitely get outside as the sun is rising, like hands down. I love that morning walk. It's so life giving. Yeah. And then I'm usually before that morning walk, I'll do a few nuts or seeds just so there's a little energy in the system. I don't like to do it fasting, just stretch. I think it's a just how I notice for my physiology. Yeah. Um, I do a little bit of hydration before the walk. Then I come back and I do uh, one of these guys, which you can't see too well, but it's a ball glass jar. That's um, I don't know. It's about, it's about 800 milliliters. It's two quart, a quart, I think. Are we doing know. warm water? Uh, like yeah. Yeah, that's so usually the warm. Yeah. Yeah. So typically it's room temperature warm with a little bit of mineral salt and lemon or lime. Lime is a little bit better for my constitution. So I do morning water with ginger lime and a little bit of mineral salt. And um, then it sort of depends from there. You know, sometimes there's some meditation, pranayama. There's usually a self-care routine that uses Ayurvedic body products that I do more in the evening. But if I've missed that, I'll do a little bit in the morning too. Great. We'll have to hit that uh, next time. And then um, I think the other thing is, um, you know, we usually like to 
just make sure that listeners have the resources to kind of learn more about you. And um, I know you're focused on more clinician training, but how can people like either work with you or engage with you a bit more? Sure. So can find me on social media, um, D-O-C-T-O-R, Siri Chand, S-I-R-I-C-H-A-N-D. So Dr. Siri Chand. And there'll be links to my website through any of the social platforms. I'm probably most active on Instagram. Um, I do have a Facebook group where I share lots of cooking lifestyle tips that anyone's welcome to join. So anybody's interested in that, they can find that on my website, which is drsirichan.com. All right, Dr. Sirichan. Sirichan, thank you so much for coming on today. And I'd love to have you back for round two sometime. Absolutely. Love that. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.